Well, congregation, at this time, let me invite you to turn in your copy of God's Word to Deuteronomy chapter 17. Deuteronomy chapter 17, and in your pew Bibles, uh, you should be able to find that on page 189. As I said moments ago, this sermon was meant for Father's Day a couple weeks ago, and I got the idea to use this text from another minister named Paul Washer. Uh, He recently gave a conference on what it is to be a godly man, and he walked through this passage and used the analogy of a king as what it would be to be uh, the spiritual head of a household, and I thought it was fitting enough to use uh, for Father's Day. So that's the the gist of it. Uh, Here, Moses is instructing Israel on how a king is to function, and uh, from the analogy of that, we'll make application, of course, to fathers and husbands. But let's give our attention now to the reading of God's Word, Deuteronomy 17, beginning at verse 14. And I remind you, this is God's holy, inerrant Word. When you come to the land that the Lord your God is giving you, and possess it, and dwell in it, and then say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me. You may indeed set a king over you, whom the Lord your God will choose. One from among your brothers you shall set as king over you. You may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother. Only he must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses. Since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way again. And he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away, nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. And when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law, approved by the Levitical priests. And it shall be with him, and he shall read it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes and doing them that his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers, and that he may not turn aside from the commandment, either to the right hand or to the left, so that he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel. There ends the reading of God's holy word. And as always, brothers and sisters, we're dependent on God, the Holy Spirit, to bless the preaching of this word. Let's pray for the Holy Spirit's blessing at this time. Our great God and our Father, we are reminded that you have ordained the means of preaching to build up your church, to convert the lost, and to spread the gospel to the ends of the earth. And so, Father, we pray now bless us through the hearing of your word. Father, bless your servant who speaks. We pray, Lord, that it would be your words and not his own that would be spoken. Father, send your spirit that our hearts would not only have an understanding of the text, but, Father, that we would be humbled this morning, that we would see the truth of it. But most of all, Father, we pray, lift our eyes up to behold Christ and him crucified this morning from this word. Refresh us by the hearing of your word, we pray. And we ask this in Christ's name alone. Amen. Well, a number of years ago, when I was a a little boy, like perhaps many of you young men. Uh, I was a part of uh, the cadet group in my local Christian church. Um, Perhaps like many of you, I also participated in the yearly snow derby. And the snow derby is exactly like it sounds. We would go to a field, we'd go to the woods, we would take a sled or uh, a sled and we would load it up with a number of gear. We'd have tents, 
Uh, we'd have fire-making capabilities. We have first aid equipment. And the goal was to go to various locations assigned throughout the woods and to do an, a task and be graded on points. One of the tasks was to build a fire. Uh, another task was to uh, put up a tent. And so all of these things were done in competition. Uh, but the other part of the challenge was to use a map and a compass to find each of these locations. Uh, the cadet group that I was a part of, each of the cadets would take turns. We would have a map, we'd have the compass, and we'd take turns walking ahead of the sled team, uh, guiding the way through the woods, guiding the way through the field to find the next location. Even as I think on that, it was clear in those days which cadet knew how to use a compass and which one did not. Uh, the cadets who knew how to use a compass and map well led straight to the next location. They, they knew how to keep their bearing. There was no stopping. There was no turning around. There was no wandering off the path. They led us straight to the next location, and we succeeded. However, for the cadets who didn't master the art of the compass, there was a lot of going off track. There was a lot of stopping and reassessing. There was even times of turning around. In fact, I remember one time we went to the exact wrong location and had to get sent back to where we began. The point is, if you're leading the way, if you know how to use the tools well, it's a blessing to those who follow. However, if you're a leader and you don't know how to use the tools well, not only will you walk off path, but also the people who are following you will join you in wandering off the path and leads to harm. Well, this morning, in many ways, that's a good analogy for what God says in his word about those who are given delegated authority from him to lead. In the text before us this morning, God is telling Israel about how their king is to live, how their king is to function. We need to be reminded this morning that the king of Israel in the Old Covenant was not just simply a king, he was literally a spiritual leader. If you know your Bibles well, you know that when the king was obeying God, submitting to him, and following God, there was blessing as God's people followed him. However, more often than not, when the king wandered off, went his own way, what happened to God's people? Well, they were led off the path. And harm was brought because their leader was not leading them appropriately. And that is true for anyone who is given authority from God. Good leaders, those who follow after God, bring blessing to those who follow. And those who do not lead well, lead others astray. And as I said, the point of the sermon this morning is primarily focused on fathers, husbands and fathers. We're reminded in God's word that he has ordained men, husbands and fathers, to be the spiritual heads of our homes. We function in many ways like the kings of Israel, and therefore this text has much to tell us this morning for how we are to lead our families aright. Primarily, the main point is that we lead our families according to God's word. As I said, this is the second generation, the first generation in the wilderness wandered away, and God wants to warn his people again not to do that, and so he warns them according to the kings. Here's the theme that with God's help I hope to show you from the text this morning. We learn that fathers are called to lead their families guided by God's word. Fathers are called to lead their families guided by God's word. I have three points from the text to, to get at that theme. First of all, we need to note the caution of the king. 
There's a number of things God cautions kings about, warns them not to do as spiritual leaders of Israel. Secondly, we need to note the character of the king, his character, and primarily how his character is to be shaped by God's word. And then thirdly, we need to note the caretaking of the king, how the king is to be the caretaker, how he's to serve the people. So those three things, the caution of the king, the character of the king, and then thirdly, the caretaking of the king. First of all, know with me then the caution of the king. What does God warn Israel and the kings not to do? Well, the first thing in verses 14 and 15, the caution is to not put a king over you who's an unbeliever. Look at verse 14. It says, when you, come into the, when you come to the land that the Lord your God is giving you, and you possess it and dwell in it, and then say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me, you may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. One from among your brothers you shall set as king over you. You may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother. Notice that God is preparing Israel. It's going to be a number of years yet, long in the future, before a king will sit on the throne of Israel. But God says, already now, there will come a day when you will want a king, you will request a king, and I will put a king over you. Again, if you know your Bible, you know that later on, Israel will look around at the other nations, and they want a king like the other nations. In many ways, a sinful desire of a good thing that God would give to them. And you know that God gave them Saul. And eventually he put David and so on, and David's sons on the thrones over his people. And in many ways, the book of Judges tells us that kings were meant to be good. Uh, The book of Judges tells us that apart from a righteous ruler, apart from a, a godly leader, God's people always do what is right in their own eyes. We're reminded that it's fitting that there are those with delegated authority, spiritual leaders, that God has assigned in various areas of his church. Well, notice, God says when that day comes, there's two requirements. First of all, the king must be appointed by me. That's exactly what we see most often than not. The anointing of the king with the holy oil was to symbolize God's appointment to that office and the need of the Holy Spirit to carry out the function of that office. God says, first of all, you must only put a king over you that I have approved, that I have appointed. But notice the warning in the text, the second warning, or the second aspect of who to appoint, is notice he must be a believer. He must be a member of the covenant community. He must not be a pagan from the surrounding nations. Maybe we could put it this way. He must be a circumcised man bearing my covenant mark, being a follower of me as you put him on the throne. He must lead God's people in God's ways. You notice here that he must be from among God's people, not a pagan. And you ask the question, well, why is it so important that that he be an Israelite? Why is it so important that he be a believer? The answer is, is that to be a king of Israel is not just simply to rule with justice and authority. It is to be the spiritual leader who walks ahead of Israel following after God. And you see, if the person does not know God personally, if the king is not a believer, if the king is not himself personally following after God, he cannot lead God's people in following after God himself. God says to be a spiritual leader, you personally as the king, must be a believer. You must be following after me in your own personal walk 
and life. He must not be an unbeliever. The point is, to be a king uh, over Israel, he must be following after God. Uh, By the way, just as a side note, by way of application, this is one of the reasons why the whole Bible forbids the marrying of unbelievers. Especially for you young ladies present here today, why does God forbid you marrying an unbelieving young man? The answer is he's to be your spiritual leader. And if he's not following after God, if he does not know God, he cannot lead you in following after God. Uh, Even more than that, if he were to become the father of your children, if, if he is not a believer, if he is not following after God, he cannot be a spiritual leader of your children. You see, the application falls through to be a spiritual leader, to walk ahead of those whom God has given to lead. God says, you personally must know me in your own walk and life. And so the first requirement is that the king be a believer, a covenant member, personally following after God. Personal faith is a requirement to be a king, a husband, and a father. Notice the second caution as well. Not only must he be a believer, he must not have lots of horses. Look at verse 16. It says, Only he must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses. Since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way again. Uh, In many ways, in our present day, this seems like a very odd command. God says, kings, you must not have many horses. Make sure to whittle your herds down. Make sure you only have a few of them. Do not amass a large amount of horses. Now, two weeks ago, when I was studying the text and reading some commentaries, there are a number of reasons given for why God would have such a requirement for a king. Uh, First of all, and this is probably the primary reason, uh, is in that this day and age, uh, horses were used in battle. To have a lot of horses meant that you had a powerful army. Uh, You could probably liken that to like the Abrams tank of our own day. If you have a lot of tanks, if you have a lot of air force, uh, you have a large military, uh, you're a powerful force to be reckoned with. And horses were akin to that in this day. For a king to have a lot of horses and a lot of chariots meant he had a powerful army that could crush the other opposing force. And God is saying to the Israel's kings, listen, you are not to wage war like the the pagans do. You're not to trust in your own might, but rather you're to trust in me. You are to be weak, in other words, according to the world's standard, so that you are strong in my might when you go into battle. Again, think of the book of Joshua. Think of all the battles that took place in Israel's history. When the king got on his knees and humbly prayed out of dependence, what did God do? He gave overwhelming victories because God is showing it is my might, my strength that gives the victory, not your own. But what happened when Israel trusted in themselves? What happened when Israel trusted in foreign armies with lots of horses? God crushed them. Why? He's teaching Israel that they need to walk by faith and not by sight. He's teaching Israel that when they are weak, then he is strong, you see. There's a sense in which God is keeping Israel's kings weak in order that he would display his might through them. Additionally as well, horses also were a sign of wealth. In a moment, we're going to see warnings against wealth, and likely that also is included. But I want to note one other third thing about the horses here. Notice especially God is concerned that Israel not go to Egypt to gain the best horses. The temptation would be to go to to Egypt where they have the best horses, the best trainers, to get the best horses to rely on. God says you're not to return there. Why? Because that's the land he delivered them from. 
Egypt is symbolic for the world, and God says, listen, you're to trust me. Your heart is to be dependent upon me. You're not to go back to Egypt where you will be tempted to trust the world or to request aid from the world where you are to look only to me for it. So God, speaking to the future king, says you are to keep yourself militarily weak that I would display my strength through you. Now, and by the way, doesn't this show us how God knows our own hearts? Doesn't this show us that God knows your temptations and my temptations? This shows us that God knows that we're going to wrestle with things, that, that we trust things more that we can see and feel. We trust things more that we can do because, because it's of our own might. But God says, that's not faith. Faith is trusting me, having a relationship with me, and I will carry you through. By way of application to godly husbands and godly fathers here this morning, how are we to lead our families? We are to lead our families in dependency of God's daily grace to lead our wife and our children in the way after God. In fact, in many ways, we should know our weakness the most as godly men. We know our own sins. We know our own weaknesses. And that's exactly where God wants us. In many ways, we are better husbands and we are better fathers when we are on our knees in prayer every day saying, God, listen, I can't do this apart from your grace. You see, that's a prayer God is delighted to answer. When husbands and fathers are humble and seek God's daily grace, God gives it to meet the challenges of the day. Notice the third thing about caution here. Notice as we go on, verse 17, he must not acquire many wives. It says, he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart be turned away. Uh, Again, you would ask the question, why is God so concerned about all the wives? Well, on the one hand, in this day and age, uh, acquiring many wives was a way that kings built alliances. You see this all the time in the Bible. Kings would acquire uh, the daughter of Pharaoh, the daughter of the other nations, and the reason was is to build a peace treaty. The thought process was, if I marry so-and-so's daughter, it's very unlikely he's going to come and attack me. And so we intermarry, and therefore we have this union based upon this marriage, and treaties are formed that way. But you notice a couple of warnings here. To take many wives from foreign nations, first of all, means that these kings would be marrying unbelievers. I'm going to tip my hand a little bit here, but in a moment we're going to look at Solomon, or just mention Solomon, but if you read, especially 1 Kings, this is exactly where Solomon fell. It is said over and over in the Bible that where Solomon began to give ways when he married many wives, and especially unbelieving wives. When Solomon acquired unbelieving wives, what did they take with them to his castle? They took their gods. And what did Solomon do? He began building temples to these false gods. He, he began to humor uh, the pagan worship. Because of all these wives he acquired. And notice your text. Why does God forbid this? Because they will turn your heart away from me. And so God is telling kings, listen, you're not to make alliances. You're not to marry unbelieving women just to form those alliances. Lest their false worship would get a hold of you and you walk away from me. Likely as well, the commentators notice it's, it's, it's primarily just the false worship and unbelieving wives, but likely as well, also God forbids this, lest the king give himself to an overindulgence in sensuality apart from intimacy with one wife. Part of the reason also that Solomon is rebuked in the Bible is that he gave himself to the overindulgence of sensuality with all of his wives. And God says, you are to guard your heart. 
You are to live in purity and holiness since you are the king of Israel. And so we learn here this morning that the godly king must guard his heart from sinful lust and sinful compromises with the world. Last caution. Notice lastly, again, verse 17, he must not acquire lots of money, God says, uh, nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. Uh, Likely this is closely connected to the wives and to the many horses. God knows our hearts. He knows that we struggle with greed. He knows that we struggle with the love of this world. And so God tells the king, listen, I'm going to bless you, but guard your heart. Do not give yourself over to the love of money, lest it take your heart away. Again, isn't that what Jesus tells you in the Gospel of Matthew? You cannot serve two masters, for either you will love the one and hate the other, or you will serve the one and and despise the other. What does Jesus say? You cannot serve both God and money. God is telling the king of Israel that you cannot serve me and money. You are to guard your heart from the love of possessions and the love of money. The godly king of Israel must guard his heart from greed. Again, if you think about it, what is God telling the future kings that are going to come to the throne? What are they to be vigilant? What are they being cautioned against here? Isn't it interesting that they're being cautioned to protect Israel from themselves? God is warning kings, listen, I know what's in your heart. I know you have sinful desires. Since you're a spiritual leader, you lead first and foremost by keeping watch over your own heart. To be a faithful king, to be a faithful spiritual leader, begins first with guarding your own heart for the good of those whom you lead. Now you would ask, what's the application now to us this morning, especially what's the application to husbands and fathers? And I would say this, here's the application. Husbands and fathers, we lead, first of all, by guarding our own hearts. How do we serve our families best? By waging war against our own personal sins. We guard our hearts best by following after God for the benefit of our families. Listen, such a text like this is convicting to me and no doubt convicting to you this morning. But listen, God's word comes to us and says to be a faithful spiritual leader means we are on our knees in repentance. We are confessing our sin. We are putting our sin to death by his grace. Why? Because our wives need us to be spiritual men. Our children need us to be spiritual fathers. Our children need to see us repenting of our sin, confessing our sin, putting our sin to death. Our spiritual walk with God and wrestling with sin and guarding our own hearts is how we lead our families. So that's first of all, that's the caution then of a king. Now, secondly, I want to note the character of the king. And primarily what I mean by this is how his character is to grow. He's to put off sin... But the king is to put on godliness. Notice how he is to do this. Look at verse 18. Speaking of the king, it says, When he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law approved by the Levitical priest. Notice, isn't it interesting? God is saying, listen, item number one, you've just been crowned. You've just sitting on the throne for the first time. Agenda item number one. I want you to copy for yourself, word by word, sentence by sentence, paragraph by paragraph, the copy of this law. Now, commentators are divided of what God means by this law. I would argue, I think it's the book of Deuteronomy. 
Uh, It could be the Ten Commandments. It could be the first five books of the Bible. But I think God is speaking of the whole book of Deuteronomy. Whatever it is, notice that God is telling the king that before he does anything else as a delegated authority, he is to first of all copy God's law for himself. Notice, he can't delegate this. He has to pick up the pen. He's got to take the scroll himself, and word by word, the king is to copy every word of God's law for himself and write it down. Even as I thought on that a couple of weeks ago, what, why is God telling him to do this for himself? I think part of the emphasis here is to force the king to write it, as it were, upon his own heart. Isn't it true that when you write something down yourself and when you're forced to copy it, It really sticks with you a lot better. I think that's a little bit of what's going on here. God is telling the king, listen, I want you to write for yourself with your own hand and your own copy of a scroll, word by word, each aspect of the law. Don't leave anything out. Write down the entirety of this law. And notice, he's to be supervised. Notice who's looking over the king's shoulder. It is the Levites, those who know the law the best. The king is to have someone watch his copy of the word. The reason is that the king would not take away from God's law, and the king would not add to God's law. He's reminded the king is not above the law. The king is underneath the law. Therefore, it's not his authority to change the law. And so God says, listen, the Levite are going to be watching you. They're going to make sure you copy it exactly and accurately to make sure that the king makes a faithful copy. God wants this written on the hearts and the minds, and he wants the king to know his authority is not his own. It is delegated by God. Now notice verse 19. He's not done once he copies God's word. Notice what he's to do with that scroll. It says, and it shall be with him, and he shall read in it, all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes and doing them. Notice the king isn't to finish copying it, roll the scroll up, put it on the shelf, and then get busy doing the work of the king. No, God says you're to keep it with you. You're to have my word before you, and you are to make regular habit of studying my word. Notice that. God says, it's my word that gives you your spiritual strength. It is my word that gives you the ability to to rule well. It is my word that gives you the ability to function as a spiritual head over God's people. And so the king was to regularly read and study God's word. And again, if you look at your text, there's two results that God wants out of this regular study of the Bible. First of all, it will cause him to revere and fear the Lord his God. You see, that's one of the functions of reading God's Word. To read God's Word is to daily renew our minds. It it causes us to fear the Lord of God. What is godly fear? It is to read in God's Word of His holiness. It is to read in God's Word of my sin. It is to read in God's Word of my problem with this holy God. But also, to read God's Word shows us the solution to that problem. You see, as the king is to daily renew his mind through the study of God's word, he's being shaped, he's being molded by it. The king is having his mind shaped in such a way that he's more and more living in reverence and fear of this holy God, and he's more and more living in humility, knowing that he is a sinner saved by grace. The second function of daily study is that it transforms the king's life, that he becomes more obedient. 
Again, it's the same for you and me. The more you and I read God's Word, the more we are shaped by it, the more the Holy Spirit changes us, and the more our lives begin to be molded and shaped after God's will. This is exactly what the king of Israel was to do, to literally be molded and shaped by God's Word. Here's the point. A godly king was to make study and knowing God's Word the priority of his life. Only by studying and reading would he know the rule, how to rule and to lead God's people. And only by studying and reading would his own character and life be changed. And so what is the point this morning? What is the application to you and me? Well, well, let me point back to how we began. Remember the analogy of the cadet groups going on the snow derby. Remember the analogy of using the compass while the tool God gave us. That's exactly what God's word is to husbands and fathers. What is your compass? What is my compass for how we guide our family? Well, brothers, it is God's Word. It is to be God's Word that guides us in how we lead as husbands and fathers. It is God's Word that that equips us for the calling with every day and every year as we lead our families. It is our compass, and if we know it well, our wives and our children who follow us will be blessed. But listen, this is where we need to humble ourselves this morning. If we are not being shaped by God's Word, if we do not know how to use the tool of God's Word, like the cadets who did not know how to use the compass, we may lead our family astray. There may be times where we walk off the path and our family will follow with us. God's Word is the chief means of how we lead our families, the point this morning. Now, I want to make very clear, even as I give this, that my goal is not to guilt trip either you or me. I am guilt I am as guilty as you under this requirement. But you notice as husbands and fathers, this is God's word to us. You know, I mentioned earlier that I got the idea for this sermon from that, uh, the minister Paul Washer. He, he said in that conference that he's approached by a lot of young men who will ask him, how do I be a godly man? How do I grow in my godliness? How do I put off sin? And, and Paul Washer said they're always looking for like a silver bullet. He says, I always have to disappoint them because this is not rocket science, he says. It's the study of God's Word. To all of us this morning, how do you, how do I grow in godliness? It is the study of God's Word. If we are not regularly in God's Word, if we are not regularly being shaped and molded by it, brothers and sisters, we should not be surprised if we are not having our character transformed. It is God's Word that shapes us, and especially for those who lead, it is God's Word that equips us for leading our families. Again, in many ways, with all humility, there are no no shortcuts to this. Brothers, to be a faithful husband means that regularly being in God's word is of necessity, especially with our children. How will you answer your children's questions if you do not know where to point them to in God's word? We're to be men, godly men, of God's word. Thirdly, and finally this morning, notice the caretaking of the king. How is a a spiritual leader to lead? Notice, first of all, the caretaking of the king is humble servant leadership. Uh, Look at verse 20 as he builds on the, the study of God's word. He says that his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers, and that he may not turn aside from the commandment, either to the right hand or to the left. You notice that to be a godly king means you are to be a humble king. Uh, One of the functions of God's law is to keep the king humble. Why? Notice your text. That he would not be haughty, 
that he would not get high on his horse and think he's better than his brothers. Isn't it true? And even in our own day and age, when someone is put to a level of office, if they're not careful, they begin to think they're of higher class. They begin to look down on their constituents and think that they're better than everyone else. And God says, listen, you're not to do that. Because to be a king, to be a spiritual leader, means that you don't elevate yourself, but rather you humble yourself. God is telling kings, I've given you authority. I've given you leadership, not that you would be served, but that you would serve others. See, that's the way it works in God's church. To be given authority in God's church is that you would not elevate yourself, but that you would serve others. Again, think of the Lord Jesus Christ. What was his chief example of what it is to be a good leader? It was on the night he was betrayed. What did he do? He took off his outer garments. He took that rag. He got on his knees. He did the lowliest form of servitude, and he washed the feet of his disciples to their shock. They were aghast that their Savior, their Messiah, would wash their feet. And what did Jesus say? This is true leadership. This is what you are to do to one another. You are to get on your knees and to serve. And you see, that's the way it is with every area of delegated authority. The purpose of authority is to be a servant leader, to care for the needs of others, to serve them, not to be served. And the other part of the caretaking is that as the king does this, notice that he will be blessed by God. Verse 20 again, the the last part. It says, so that he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel. That's the closing word. God says to any king who is faithful in this, to any king who is seeking to be godly, here's what I promise. There will be blessing for you, covenant blessing. Uh, You and your children will will last long, and there will be tremendous blessing both for you uh, and God's people. Now again, if you know your Old Testament well, you know that almost very rarely, if hardly at all, Was there a king that was a blessing to God's people? You know, Saul was a tremendous failure, and then you have David. David served well, but David also, who was a man after God's own heart, sinned grievously. He committed adultery and murder. And then it was Solomon. Solomon started so well, and he ended so poorly. He had wisdom, and then his wives led him astray. You read 1 Kings 11, verses 1 through 8, over and over and over, God's indictment against Solomon is that he transgressed every one of these commandments. He acquired many horses. He acquired many unbelieving wives. And he acquired much gold. And what happened to King Solomon's wise heart? Well, he was led astray because he did not guard his heart well. And you see, that we, we learned this morning that even with the divinic covenant, God's promise that the son of David would sit on the throne forever, Israel would go back to this text and say, where is this king? Who is the king that can do this? So here's the gospel connection this morning. This is a picture of what the Lord Jesus Christ is for you and me. No human sinful king can perfectly do what God has said here to do. But who has done it? It is our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. It is our King who sits on the throne even now, ruling over us, His church. What did Jesus do for us? He came with all authority and power to what? To serve us. Think of that. Uh, Philippians 2 is one of my favorite passages in the Bible because Paul says, what did Jesus become to you and me? Literally, he became our slave. Think of that. Why did Jesus come as our king? What did he do as our king? He willingly went to the cross of Calvary. He willingly was nailed to that cross. And in the darkness of Calvary, what did our blessed king do? 
He bore all of the curse of all of our sin and was laid upon Him and He was forsaken by the Father. And you see, He was the only righteous King. He was the only sinless King. Why did He do that? Because He was a faithful King who protected His people from our sin, from our enemy, the devil. That's what the cross is all about. You know, what did Jesus say to His disciples when He was arrested? I could call for a thousand legions of angels and they could rescue me in this moment, but I'm not doing that. Why? Because I have a people I love. I have a people whom I've come to serve. I have a people, believers this morning, I have a people to die for. Christian, that is your king. That is your savior. All that he's done was for you. The cross of Calvary was the greatest victory a king has ever done as he was nailed there in shame. He triumphed over sin and Satan. On our behalf. He is the only righteous king who walks ahead of us. Now, in conclusion, then, as we try to tie this all together, what what does this all mean for you and me this morning? I have two things to leave you with. I'll speak to parents, but predominantly, of course, husbands and fathers, since it was a Father's Day sermon. First of all, this morning, it teaches us as parents and husbands and fathers that knowing and following after Jesus as king is how we lead our families. Now, parents, if you're like me, if you're paying attention to culture, you almost want to pull your hair out because culture is changing so fastly that you almost don't even know what to tell your kids about what they're watching on the news. You almost can't even let your kids watch the news anymore because of how our culture is so rapidly changing. And, and you almost want to raise your hand up and say, how do I parent? What, what do I focus on as a parent to meet all of these challenges since I can't keep up with it? Well, this text and the Bible gives you the answer. Teach your children to follow after Christ as king. Keep their eyes, keep your eyes fixed on Christ and follow after him and he will lead you through the storm. How are we to do that? Let me give you a couple of pointers. First of all, parents, we lead by pointing to the gospel. Parents, you and I and our children are sinners needing a Savior. Uh, and what we're called to do is to, to remind our children of their sin. We're to disciple them and lead them to repentance. We're to teach them to repent and to believe. Our covenant children need to be discipled in the faith. We're to disciple them in the gospel. When they sin, we're to cause them to, we're to lead them to repentance and point them to forgiveness through faith in Jesus Christ. You know, let me ask you a question by way of personal application. Parents, when was the last time you had a deep conversation about Jesus with your children? When was the last time you sat down with your son or daughter and said, listen, this is who Jesus is. This is my Savior. Listen, Dad's a sinner. I've I've sinned this morning. You've seen my sin. Jesus is my only hope. Parents, let us be transparent about a personal relationship with Jesus. Let us speak openly. Let us speak frequently about our Savior. Let Jesus be the the person our children know the best. Why? Because that's whom we at this baptism vowed to disciple our children in following. Disciple our children in the gospel. And I would say in light of that, not only the gospel, but lead our children in following Jesus' teaching. We read it from Deuteronomy 6. What's to be center point in our homes? It is God's word. We're to have our word, we are to have Jesus' word open regularly in our home. We're to be reading it with our children. We are to be instructing them in God's word. Let me ask you another personal question by way of personal application. Parents, how much time do your children spend on social media and TV 
versus time being discipled in God's Word. What is molding your children's worldview most? Is it social media? Is it Instagram? Or are they in God's Word enough to push back against the godly, godless culture around us? Are they being shaped more by what they see on TV and the celebrities or, or what they're seeing on social media? Or are you as parents, and I as a parent, getting my children in the Word enough that God's Word is shaping them, keeping God's Word as the center point? And I want to end with encouragement. So the second and the last thing I would lead is a word of encouragement to parents. And that is that God provides daily grace to do this. You know, if you read Deuteronomy 17, no king could perfectly do this, and God knew that. What is God's promise in Deuteronomy 17? That to a sinful king who gets on his knees and repents of where he sins, where he repents of where he's fallen short, and, and where a king gets on his knees and says, God, I need your help. God says, I'll be faithful and help you. Parents, that's the hope this morning. Neither you nor I can parent perfectly. We sin every day. What hope is there? That when we repent and when we cry out for grace, God gives it. Be very encouraged. God loves you and he loves your children. With great humility, he will give you and me the grace we need to lead our children. Amen. Let's pray. Our gracious God and our Heavenly Father, lead us in this way, we pray. Bless our homes with your Spirit. Bless us with your Spirit that we would be faithful. Father, bless us especially in the challenging times we live, in the shifting cultures around us. Father, bless our homes that Christ would be the most important person present and that our children by faith would cling to him. And we ask this in Christ's name alone. Amen.